We'll go ahead and get started. Romans part 13, we are starting chapter 4 this week, and we'll get through the first eight verses. And uh, last week, we covered uh, verses 21 through 31, and Paul had started to explain the gospel and how uh, we can be justified by faith alone based on what Christ has done on the cross for us and how that wasn't always known, right? And that's how he talks about um, who God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God there in Romans 3.25. And that explains how the people in the Old Testament, the people that even though they didn't know about the cross of Christ, their faith wasn't in that, how that's how their sins can be forgiven, how they can have that remission of their sins based on their faith in God and what he had told them to do. Uh, Christ's death on the cross is what paid for those sins as well. And so that's how we today can be saved by faith alone in Christ and his work. It's nothing that we do, right? You talked about where is boasting then. There is no boasting because it's Christ and what he did, and our faith is in that, not in our own works, not in our flesh. Um, but this week we'll be going into uh, chapter 4, and he's still talking about faith, and he's going to talk about Abraham and David in this chapter to show, again, people in the Old Testament how they had faith in God, and it was counted to them for righteousness. Uh, so starting in verse 1, it says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but a debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Uh, so starting in verse 1, it says, uh, Abraham our father, and of course he's speaking to Jews here. Okay, Paul being a Jew, that's why he says our father, uh, because Abraham was the father of the Jews. He was one of the fathers or the father, actually, of the Jews, being the first one called out there in Genesis when God called Abram out uh, to start this nation of Israel. And there's some verses in Jesus' earthly ministry that show that they... All right, this is something that Israel boasted in, having Abram as their father, Abraham as their father. But just to show this, in Luke 173, this is Zacharias. Uh, speaking of prophecy here, and he says, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. And this prophecy is talking about uh, the Messiah that's going to be born and how he'll fulfill the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So there's Zacharias calling Abraham our father. Zacharias being a Jew, of course. Uh, Acts 7-2, Stephen, before he preaches his message there, He says, and he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon. So here Stephen says, our father, Abraham. So again, Stephen being a Jew, speaking to the high priest and the Pharisees there, says Abraham, our father. So again, this was something that the Jews claimed, our father, Abraham. And then in Romans 9, again, Paul being a Jew would also refer to Abraham as his father. In verse 4, he says, or verse 3, he talks about 
How he wished that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And the kinsmen in the flesh are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. So there it clearly says that the Israelites, right, the covenants promises were given to them to their fathers, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here when he says, uh, what shall we say then that Abraham, our father, uh, as pertaining to the flesh, have found our father, of course, he's speaking to Jews here, um, himself being a Jew, referring to Abraham as his father. And so you have here where he mentions Abraham in verse 1. In verse 6, he mentions David. And David was also an important figure in Israel's history. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 1. When given the genealogy of Jesus, in verse 17 it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are fourteen generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are fourteen generations. So you notice there that there's an emphasis on Abraham to David and then David to the carrying way of Babylon, and then from there unto Christ. But when you go through this genealogy, there's an emphasis. It starts with Abraham, and then it goes to David and talks about how David the king begot Solomon. So it refers to David as king. It doesn't refer to Solomon as king, but David. Um, so there's an emphasis on Abraham and David here. Again, these were two people that were held up in Israel's history. It was two people that they would have boasted in. And so I think that's important. Uh, in part to realize Paul using them as people that he's going to point to to show well these men were justified by their faith, right? Righteousness was imputed to them by their faith. Again, to take away that boast from Israel that it's not the keeping of the law that they did, but their faith, that righteousness was counted unto them. So I believe that's why Paul is using, uh, again, these two men to take away Israel's boast. Uh, again, it was something that they would have boasted in, having David and Abraham as their fathers in history. Um, much like John the Baptist and Jesus also did this to the Pharisees. If you go to, I believe it's Matthew chapter 3. Verse 7 through 10, John the Baptist says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generations of vipers who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come, Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also as the axe is laid unto the root of the trees, therefore every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is honed down and cast into the fire. So here John the Baptist telling these Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, just because you have Abraham as your father doesn't mean anything. He says God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And of course, that goes to right whether or not you had faith in Christ as the Messiah, um, whether or not you were actually keeping the law. And we know the Pharisees, right? They made a lot of pretense in the law. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside, they were like uh, Jesus tells them, "You're like tombs, right? On the inside, you're dead, full of dead men bones." And so here, John's pointing out, it doesn't matter if you're Abraham's children in the flesh, right? What do you believe? Are you keeping the law? Are you having faith in God? 
uh, there in the context, he says, if you're not bearing forth the good fruit, you're going to be hung down and cast into the fire. So just because you're a Jew in the flesh doesn't mean anything. And then also John eight thirty nine. says, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that have told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. And then he goes on telling you do the deeds of your father, and your father is the devil. But again, the Pharisees boasting, right? Um, Abraham is our father. So they boasted in this. Abraham is our father as Jews, right? We boast in that. And Jesus says, um, if, Ab if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man which told you the truth. This did not Abraham. And so there's a difference, though, between what Paul's going to point out and what Jesus and John pointed out. And they're showing that it doesn't matter that you're Abraham's children. Both Jesus and John said you have to bear the, the good fruits. Jesus said you got to do the works of Abraham. Okay, he didn't say you have to have faith like Abraham, but you have to do the works. Again, teaching the law in that dispensation. Whereas Paul here is just going to say, you have to have faith like Abraham. Okay, so that would be the difference there. But the point being, just because Abraham's your father in the flesh, it's nothing to boast in if you don't have faith, if you're not keeping the law. And so I think that's why he's going to use uh, David and Abraham for this passage to show that it's by faith to take away that boast from Israel. And again, going back to chapter 3, where he talks about where is boasting then, is excluded by what law of works, nay, but by the law of faith. And in verses 29 through 30, he says, Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? And then he also says, um, It is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. So even in the end of chapter 3, he's taken away Israel's boast because they boasted in having the one true God. And now Paul's saying, well, that God is the same God as the Gentiles. So that takes away their boast there in having the one true God because he's also the God of the Gentiles now. Um, he says he justifies the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. So now your circumcision doesn't mean anything. He takes away that boast. right? And then he says, you're not justified by the works of the law, it's by faith. So these things that Israel boasted in, Abraham as our father, David as our king, we have the law, we obey the one true God, all that's being taken away right? because of this new dispensation of grace. Gentiles can have the same things now. They can have justification, right? They can have uh, obedience to the one true God. And so he's taking away this boast from Israel is the point here. Um, and then where it says, as pertaining to the flesh, speaking of Abraham, um, what shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, have found? That's just simply saying, what did he find in the flesh? What was his discovery in the flesh? Um, so there's nothing really there. But uh, verse 2, it says, for if Abraham were justified by works, he have whereof to glory, but not before God. And so, of course, you see the word for if Abraham, meaning Abraham was not justified by his works. But if he was, he's given the hypothetical here. right? If Abraham was justified by works, he would have whereof to glory. Um, he's already laid out in the previous three chapters that you're not justified by works. So this is just a hypothetical statement. If Abraham were justified by works, he would have whereof to glory, but not before God. Because, of course, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So you wouldn't be able to boast before God, even if he was justified by works, because he was still falling short of the glory of God. Uh, verse 3, for what saith the scripture? 
Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. So again, Paul here is going back to the Old Testament to prove some of his points. Again, Paul, the mystery, it wasn't just pulled out of thin air, right? It built upon Scripture. So that's why he goes back to Scriptures to help show this. But Genesis 15, 6, it says, And he, speaking of Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So that's what he's quoting there in uh, Romans 4, verse 3. Um, what did Abraham believe? Okay, again, some people say he was looking towards the cross. Right? That's what he was looking forward to, and that's what he believed, and that's why he was counted righteousness. He looked forward to the death and resurrection of Christ. And they say when he was going to kill Isaac, right, he knew that was a picture of the sacrifice that Christ would give. Okay, none of this is found in Scripture that Abraham knew that. Okay, that's what Abraham was believing. If you look at Galatians 3.8, Paul says the gospel that was preached to Abraham was that he would have um, a nation that would be blessed, or that all nations in him would be blessed, was the gospel preached to Abraham. In verse 6, it says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the heathen through faith, preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations of the earth shall all nations be blessed. So the gospel preached to Abraham was, In thee shall all nations be blessed. That's what Abraham believed, and that's what was counted him for righteousness. That's what his faith was in. It wasn't in the future coming of Christ and him dying on the cross for our sins. Okay, Abraham did not know that. The only thing recorded in Scripture, which is what we go by, the Scripture, that Abraham could have known would have been Genesis 3.15, which is uh, the verse where it says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So the only hint of suffering that the Messiah would face is this verse where it says, All right, the serpent will bruise thy heel. Okay, so I don't think, unless God came down and revealed to Abraham what that meant, everything that was to unfold, Abraham knew nothing of it, right? And again, that's not in Scripture, so I can't sit here and say, from Scripture, Abraham looked to the cross. Okay, it's not borne out. Galatians 3 says what he believed was that in him shall all nations be blessed. Okay, and that's all we have. It was simply his faith in what God had told him that it was counting him for righteousness. Okay, so again, that's the dispensational thought. It wasn't all revealed there in the beginning. Um, but again, some people try to say that, right? Everybody in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross, and I don't find that to be true. Um, verses 4 through 5, it says, But to him that worketh not, uh, now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So it's him that worketh is the reward reckoned of debt. So if you work for something, the reward is no longer of grace, but it's of debt. It's owed to you, right? If you do the work, then you're owed the reward. When I go to work every day, I'm doing something for my wages, right? For my bi-weekly paycheck. It's not grace that I get that bi-weekly paycheck. I earned it, okay? I went into work. It's owed to me. So if you work for something, right, it's a debt that you get the reward. It's given to you out of a debt, right? That person now owes you because you worked for them. Again, this was the law. 
they kept the law, God made a covenant to bless them. And so if you kept the law, you could tell God, bless me. Right? You promised you would if I did this, and I did it. You should bless me for it. And again, we saw last week and again this week where David prayed this prayer. Right, Bless me according to my righteousness. I have kept your statutes and your judgments. So you owe me the blessing because you promised you would. In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, he says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So if they obey his voice and keep his covenant, they can say, Okay, make us this great nation. Bless us. Make us this kingdom of priests because you promised you would if we obeyed your law. Okay, this is not a reward of grace, but added debt because they kept the covenant. Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28. He says, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day. And a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. So again, that's the law, right? That was the covenant. It was a blessing and a curse. If you obey, you get the blessing. If you disobey and go after other gods, you get the curse. So again, if they obeyed it, they could say, bless me, God, right? And again, that's what David prayed in Psalms uh, 7 8. says, so shall the congregation of the people compass thee about Psalm 7, 8. I was reading verse 7. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity that is in me. So he says, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. What he's doing there is saying, right, I've been righteous in your law. Judge me according to that. Give me the blessing. And then the same thing in Psalms 18, 20 through 26, where he goes in a little further talking about the righteousness that I've had before you. Bless me according to that. So again, that's not of grace that they would have got that blessing. It would have been of debt. And that's what Paul's saying here. To him that worketh, the reward is not reckoned to that person of grace, but a debt. So if you work for something, you get the reward out of the debt. It's owed to you. In verse 5, he says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So if you work for something and have faith, that faith is not counted to you for righteousness because you're working for it in this dispensation. There's two things here. It's not just him that believeth and works. This is his faith counted for righteousness. Okay, it's him that worketh not, but believeth. Does that make sense? Because if it was to him that works and believes, you could tell the Jews, just keep doing what y'all were doing. All right, keep on doing the law, keep on doing the works, but make sure you have faith. That's not what it says. It says it's to him that worketh not but believes. So you can't work for this at all. You can't do any works for this. Right? It's someone that comes having no faith in their flesh. Right? I bring nothing to the table. There's nothing I can do at all to gain any favor with God. It's to him that worketh not at all, but believes. Right? It's simply faith in Christ and what he's done. No faith in myself. That faith is counted for righteousness. Okay? Not someone who's, yeah, I believe in God, but you know, make sure I do all this to make sure I stay in the right standing. That's not faith. That's works in faith. Okay, here it says, to him that worketh not, but believe on him that uh, justifieth the ungodly, 
his faith is counted for righteousness. And I think that's an important point to make, right? It's to him that worketh not. So the person that has no faith in what they do is those that don't try to establish their own righteousness. And Paul talks about the Jews doing this. In Romans 10.1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So here in Romans 10, he's talking about Israel, right? And unsaved Israel, because he says, My prayer is that Israel will be saved. In verse 3, he says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So why are these Jews lost? Because they're going about to establish their own righteousness. Right, and they haven't submitted to the righteousness of God. So again, it's to him that worketh not, the one that does not try to bring his own righteousness to the table, but simply believes in Christ, believes on him that justifies. Right, so if it was to just to those who believe, then the Jews could have continued doing their works as long as they added faith to it. Right, it was just you got to have faith. Doesn't matter what else, just have faith. But no, it's to those that do no works, understanding there's nothing in my flesh that I can bring. Right, to him that worketh not but believes. His faith is counted for righteousness. Um, this is also a good verse to refute Calvinism because Calvinism will make faith a work. Okay, this is how they get the whole total depravity and all that. You can't believe, right? Faith is a work. If you say, well, I had my faith in Christ, you're boasting. Right? I put my faith in Christ. Right? And so they teach the Holy Spirit has to enjoy you first, has to save you basically before you can put your faith in Christ. That's what Calvinism teaches. But here, Paul clearly says, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him. So he doesn't say, to him that worketh not, except the work of faith. Right? He's saying that belief is not a work. To him that worketh not, but believes. That shows that belief is not a work. Okay? So this is a good verse to refute Calvinism when they say, right, you can't put your faith in Christ because you're totally depraved. And if you put your faith in Christ, you're now saying you did a work for salvation. No, Paul says, belief is not a work, right? There's no boasting saying, there's nothing I can do to save myself, my faith's in Christ. There's no boasting there, right? My faith is in Christ because there's nothing I can do, right? Somehow they try to make that as a work because I'm saying I put my faith in Christ. No, the reason my faith is in Christ is because I can't do nothing, right? I have to put my faith in Christ because that's the only way I can have salvation. So Paul clearly says that, to him that worketh not, but believeth, showing that belief is not at work. So that's a good verse to, uh, like I said, refute Calvinism. But he says, believes on him that justifieth the ungodly. And of course, we covered last week how God is just to justify sinners because of what Christ has done. And so Romans 3, 20 through 26 explains how God is just to justify sinners, right, based on the work of Christ. So that's a person's faith that is counted for righteousness, right? It's by righteousness, uh, faith that you have righteousness accounted to you, not by works. Um, a lot of Protestants will say, and you might have heard this in church, right? Well, we believe that it's saved by faith alone, no works. But if that person does, doesn't have works, well, they were never saved in the first place. You've just undone what you said. If it's not by works that you're saved, it's by faith alone, then that means if you do no works in the future, you said you had faith, so you must still be saved if you believe it. Right? To say that it's, well, it's by faith alone, no works, but you have to show works to know whether or not you're saved, you're saying you're saved by works. Okay, You're undoing what you said. right? And again, this is human nature. right? We try to get around it. Right? You think about kids, 
even now today, you do something, you feel like, look at what I did when nobody was watching. Hey, look at this. Look at what I can do. You're going to do it again to try to show them, right? Look what I did. Just prove yourself, right? Human nature. Kids do it all the time. Think about little kids when they do something. They get your attention. Hey, look what I did. Look what I did. Right? You want to show that you can do something. Right? Again, the dissection of grace, faith alone in Christ, to him that worketh not, right? You don't come to the table saying, well, God, look what I did. You want me to do it again? I'll do it again. You know, I'll go to church again every Sunday. I'll never miss a Sunday. Watch me, God, right? You try to establish your own righteousness. That's not faith that's going to be counted to your account for righteousness because you're putting faith in yourself, right? Him that worketh not, but believes on God that justifieth uh, the ungodly, right? So again, don't go about saying statements like, you're saved by faith alone, but if you don't have the works, you were never saved in the first place. This is undoing what you've just said. Um, Paul, again, you can't find that in the Bible, like we showed John the Baptist, right? Those who bear not the good fruits will be thrown into the fire. Right? There is a time under the law where you have to show your works. Um, but Paul right, doesn't teach this. Paul is worried about doctrine. He's worried about what you believe on whether or not you're saved. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul deals with resurrection. In verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain. So these Corinthians might have believed in vain. They may not be saved, okay, is what he's saying. Um, and the reason he's saying that is because if you drop down to verse 12, he goes on, uh, before he gets to verse 12, talking about how Christ died. This is the gospel he preaches. Christ died, was resurrected. Talks about how he was seen of Peter, the 12, above 500, 500 brethren. He says, last of all, he was seen of me. So he's given this evidence of Christ and his resurrection. He gets down to verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? All right, so he's saying maybe you're not saved, maybe you believe in vain, is because you're now saying there's no resurrection of the dead. All right, you're denying Christ's resurrection. So how can you be saved if you deny Christ's resurrection? All right, it has nothing to do with the works that they were doing because he's dealt with that in previous chapters. All right, the Corinthians were carnal. But in none of those chapters does he say, you know, because of this sins going on in the church, you know, that brother might not actually be saved. He doesn't say that. It's when he gets to, you're now saying there's no such thing as resurrection. Right? Well, what is your faith in? Did you believe in vain when I preached to you the gospel? Okay, so his, what he's worried about, whether or not someone is saved, is doctrine. Right? What they believe, what is their faith in? And that's what he does with here. He says, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Right? He says, there be no resurrection of the, vet, uh, the dead, then my preaching is vain, and your faith is vain. Right? It means nothing if there's no resurrection of the dead. So Paul deals with whether or not you're saved based on whether or not you believe the gospel. Right? If you don't believe there's a resurrection of the dead, then, okay, maybe you're not saved, or you aren't saved, because you're not putting your faith in Christ's death and resurrection. Right? And so there's a difference between, again, Paul, his focus on doctrine, what you believe, versus whether or not you uh, show good fruits. Okay, So again, don't get into that mindset that this person isn't doing good work, so maybe they were never saved. Again, talk to them, what's your faith in? Right? When my faith is in Christ, death, and resurrection, there's nothing I can do. I would have to say that person's saved, right? They understand the gospel. So don't get into that uh, mindset. 
Also, we need to deal here with James 2 versus Romans 4 because this is another controversy in the churches. And actually, Martin Luther had a dilemma on the book of James. Uh, some people say he actually wanted it torn out of the Bible and didn't think it belongs. And there's some quotes on the back sheet of your paper that Martin Luther had about the book of James that kind of indicate he at least didn't value it as a book of the Bible. Um, he didn't think it was one, I guess, that he wouldn't focus on teaching. If he went through the Bible, it was probably the last book he would teach. Okay, But he says, Therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. So he says it's an epistle of straw compared to the others because there's nothing in the gospel about it. He says, The epistle of James gives us much trouble for the papists or the Catholics embrace it alone and leave out all the rest. Accordingly, if they will not admit my interpretations, then I shall make rubble also of it. I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove as the priest of Gallenberg did. <laughs> so basically he says if the Catholics, right, if they don't admit to my interpretations of James, then I don't want nothing to do with it. Okay, because the Catholics really hold up the book of James because it talks about faith and works. Okay. And then he also said we should throw the epistle of James out of this school, the Wittenberg, for it doesn't amount to much. It contains not a syllable about Christ. Not once does it mention Christ except at the beginning. I maintain that some Jew wrote it who probably heard about Christian people but never encountered any. Since he heard that Christians place great weight on faith in Christ, he thought, wait a moment, I'll oppose them and urge works alone. This he did. So he wasn't a big advocate of having the book of James in his Bible because he realized it contradicted the Apostle Paul. Right, and we know that Martin Luther was faith alone, grace alone. One of them was even what scripture alone. So, so he had his own interpretation of James, and basically was like, you know, if the Catholics reject these interpretations, then I might as well throw the book out the Bible. So it's like I'm right, or this book doesn't belong. It's kind of his attitude towards the Book of James, and I don't know his interpretations of the Book of James. I should get a commentary to see uh, what he said. But he says right, <laughs> compared to the other Gospels. It's not really a good book. And he's right about the mention of Christ. It's only mentioned twice in the book. And it's kind of just in passing. Um, I think it does mention Lord, though, probably speaking of Christ, no doubt. But, again, it is a controversy. If you go to James 2, and we'll just compare it to Romans chapter 4 to see the difference. Again, this is one of those passages where people will start to change the meaning of words, James didn't really mean what he said, right? He's uh, responding to Paul that you do have to have some works to show that you're saved. Is what he's saying, being justified before men, not God. And they try to get around it by explaining, right? You're not, just because you're reading it and it sounds like it's saying this, that's really not what it's saying, right? You have to dig a little deeper to get the meaning of it, they'll say. But if you start in verse 14, he says, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Paul's answer is, it's to him that work of not, but believeth. So yes, faith can save him, and only faith. But, uh, James here asks a rhetorical question. Can faith save him? James' answer is no. Okay, this is a rhetorical question. Um, he says, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed, and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? So if you tell someone that comes to your house needing clothes and food and say, be clothed and be filled, 
but don't give them the food or clothes, what profit it? And his argument here is, if you say, I have faith, but no works, what profit is your faith? So again, he's saying, faith alone can't save you. And that's what he says in verse 17, Even so, faith, if it have not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, and the devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So he clearly says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Paul in Romans 4 says, what shall we say about Abraham? What did he find in the flesh? The scripture says his faith was counted to him for righteousness. So again, it seems like a contradiction. Romans 4, 5, to him that worketh not, but believeth is justified. Uh, James 2, 24, you see then that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. I don't see how you can say the you're saying the same thing, okay? You're saying two different things. And again, people say, well, James is talking about being justified before men. Well, then you kind of have to change what does it mean to be justified and why am I trying to be justified before men? Shouldn't I just try to be justified before God? So again, there has to be a better explanation. Um, it's interesting that James points to um, Genesis 22 to show when Abraham offered Isaac up, that's when he fulfilled Genesis 15, verse 6, which is what Paul quotes, Genesis 15, 6. So James, to me, kind of looks at Genesis 15, 6 as a prophecy. right? God said, okay, I'm counting this to you for righteousness. You're a righteous man. And Abraham fulfilled that when he offered up Isaac, right? He showed that he had faith by doing this work to kill Isaac. In the Hebrews, it talks about his faith was that God could resurrect Isaac from the dead, right? So he had faith that God promised him that his seed would be a nation. And so he had faith that if he killed Isaac, God would resurrect him from the dead, is what Hebrews says. Um, but the point being here, James saying that, right, it was this work of being willing to kill Isaac that justified Abraham and fulfilled the verse in Genesis 15, 6, whereas Paul just points to Genesis 15, 6 and says it was his faith alone, right? He was counted for righteousness. So it's two different arguments. It's also interesting that things change in Abraham's life. You go to Genesis 17, and again, the man of faith will always do what God says. In this dispensation, God has said, don't do nothing, right? Just have faith in Christ and what he did. But in the dispensation of law, even in Abraham's life, God gave commands. God required something to these people. Genesis 17, 10 through 14, uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or brought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money 
must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He have broken my covenant. So this is two chapters later from Genesis 15, and now you have a requirement of Abraham and his seed, and that requirement is circumcision. So Abraham, being a man of faith, is going to do what? He's going to be circumcised and circumcised every male child in his family, right? Abraham, man of faith, in Genesis 22, is going to offer up Isaac because God told him to, okay? Again, that's the difference between Abraham and his life versus us today. God hasn't told us to do anything, right? We have no covenant. We're in a dispensation of grace in the body of Christ. So that's why Paul points to Genesis 15, 6. His faith was counted for righteousness there. He was not under no law at that point. He was not under a covenant. Okay, and that's how he's an example for us. He's an example for the Jews after uh, Genesis 17 when he has that covenant because now something's required of Abraham, right? So you can see how the man of faith, when something's required, is going to do that, and that's the Jews, those under the law, right? The law is required of them. If they have faith, they're going to do it. If you're not under the law, under grace, you just believe God and what he said, and he said, trust the work of Christ. So there is still a work that's done, but it's Christ that did it now, right? James was ignorant of that, okay? And that's what people don't want to admit because they don't rightly divide. They think James was writing to the church just like Peter was writing to the church, just like Paul was writing to the church. They don't see the mystery given to Paul after James had written his epistle, is what I believe. And that's how you explain what James is teaching, right? He's teaching in James 1.1, 1, 1, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. So who's he writing to? The twelve tribes. That's not the church, that's Israel. Okay? Um, so how to reconcile James and Paul. James is writing to the twelve tribes of Israel. I believe James was ignorant of the mystery. Um, he never mentions the cross. So he does mention Christ a couple of times, but he never mentions the cross. He says, you're justified by works. Never says anything about justified by faith in Christ and his death and resurrection. Um, James could have been written before Acts 15, which is when Paul goes to Peter and those there in Jerusalem and explains what he's doing, right? Explains the mystery and all that to them. So James very likely could have been written before this point. Um, and James is applicable to those uh, directly in a kingdom offer age, right? So he's writing to the 12 tribes in that early Acts period, right? When the kingdom was being offered. You endure to the end, show your works, right? You'll get the kingdom, basically. Um, Paul was given a mystery that James was not. Okay, that's the difference. That's how you reconcile the two. Paul's writing something different. Okay, he's writing further revelation. Um, Romans 16, 25, right? Um, to him that can establish you according to my gospel, according to the revelation of the mystery. Okay, that's what Paul says at the end of Romans. Paul was given the mystery. And there's verses there that show this clearly. If you go to Galatians 2, I will read this one. Just to show that James was ignorant of something Paul had until Paul explained it to him. James 2, verse 6 through 9. He says, But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it make no matter to me. God accepteth no man's persons. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought affection in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. 
So there was a point in time where Paul went up to Jerusalem and explained to these who seemed to be pillars, James, Cephas, and John, and they then perceived the grace given to Paul. Okay, And that's, again, a cross-reference to Acts 15 where you have the Jerusalem council where Paul goes, and they had this council of whether or not should Gentiles be circumcised to be saved. Right? Well, if you've been following Paul, you know, of course not. Right? But James and Peter and them are still there in Jerusalem, and you have Jewish saints there saying, well, yes, you do. Right, so there was this argument because they hadn't had the revelation of the mystery explained to them yet. Right, so I believe James was written before that point in time. Basically, is my one of my explanations. But he wasn't given the mystery. Right, this is clear when you study the the scripture that was given to Paul. Right, so James contradicts Paul because they're writing to two different audiences in two different dispensations about two different subjects. Okay, so that's how you get around that by rightly dividing it. I'm not going to sit here and say, well, justification doesn't mean this here, but it means that there, because then you can say that about any passage. Well, forgiveness doesn't mean this here. Salvation doesn't mean this here. Okay, so how do you get around it without changing the words, basically, and rightly dividing it, understanding dispensational changes is how you can explain that, and it makes sense, okay? So I just wanted to cover that because, again, that is a controversy in the church, James 2 and Romans 4. And again, like Luther said, it's true Catholics hold the book of James because it says clearly, right, faith without works is dead. So you have to do all these works to be justified. Okay, and they go to James for that. Again, it's scriptural, but it's not dispensational, right? So that's how I would explain that. I would continue on in Romans 4. It says, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputed righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So it's interesting, he says, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputed righteousness without works. Um, David does not understand the age of grace as it was revealed to Paul. He simply describes the blessedness of such a state. Right? It just says David describes the blessedness of that man to whom sins are not imputed to him. Right? To whom righteousness is imputed without works. David says... Whoever has righteousness imputed to them without works, that's a blessed man. Paul says this is how you can have righteousness imputed to you without works. So that's the difference between David and Paul. Paul had the mystery. David didn't. Right? David just knew that's a blessed state to be in, to have righteousness accounted to you without works. Paul explains how that's possible through the work of Christ. Okay. Um, and, of course, he's quoting uh, Psalm 32, 1 through 2, is the passage in verse 7 and 8 that he's quoting where David says, right, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sins. David did not have sins imputed to him, even under the law, because, again, he was blessed. He had faith in God, and God counted that to him for righteousness. When God imputes righteousness, the law cannot condemn, because God has already imputed righteousness to you, which is why in this dispensation, you're not under the law. The law can't condemn you. There is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Because God has pronounced you righteous, right? You've been given righteousness. He's imputed it to you. So David realized he was blessed, but he didn't realize why he was blessed or how it was possible that he could be blessed because he didn't know, again, the mystery. He just knew it was a blessed state to be in. Um, in Psalms 51, 16, right, he shows, it shows us that um, David had righteousness accounted to him because he broke a law that there was no sacrifice for. But he still had forgiveness. Okay. 
Psalms 51, 16, he says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else will I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. So the reason he didn't bring a sacrifice or a burnt offering is because under the law, when you murdered somebody, there was no sacrifice to give. Right? You got basically killed for that. So he says, you don't desire a sacrifice. Right? There's nothing I can bring. Um, but yet he still didn't have that sin imputed to him. Right? He had righteousness imputed to his count based on his faith. There's also uh, a thing called the sure mercies of David. Uh, Paul mentions this in Acts 13.34. David had sure mercies. says, as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And he's quoting Isaiah 55, 3. But what these sure mercies are was basically um, God's covenant or promise to David that his seed would reign on the throne forever. Much like his promise to Abraham that he would have a nation forever that would bless other nations. So it's kind of a similar promise. Abraham was given the nation that would bless all other nations, and David was promised the king that would sit upon that throne forever. Um, and of course, they both had faith in this promise given to them, and that faith in that promise was how righteousness was put to their account because of their faith in what God had told them. And so the, David had those sure mercies. Again, if your seed is promised to you by God that will reign on the throne forever, well, God's not going to kill you when you commit a sin if you don't have a seed yet, right? Because you have that sure mercy, that promise that covenant. Um, 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16. It says, Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from the following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy kingdom, out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for thy name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, when I put away before thee. In, mine ha in thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. So he says, right, your son's going to sit on the throne after thee, speaking of Solomon. But he says, I'll establish right, his seat on the throne forever. And of course, that's a prophecy of Christ coming from the seat of David. Um, there in verse 13, I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He says, um, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul. Right, so Saul's seed didn't sit on the throne forever. Right? Jonathan didn't get that privilege. It was given to David. Right. But David was promised that his seed would sit on that throne forever. And again, you study Israel's history, how when they split up, David's seed sat on the throne of, I think it was, the two tribes, Judah. And that continued all the way until Christ was born. Right? And of course, Christ fulfills that prophecy where he will sit on that throne forever. But this was a promise given to David. This is part of the sure mercies uh, that was given to David. And again, there's some in the Psalms that speak of this. Psalms 89 
basically the whole chapter speaks about um, this promise, this covenant given to David. So these are two people in the Old Testament that Paul points to to show they had righteousness imputed to their account based on their faith. Again, they didn't understand the mystery. They didn't know the mystery. Their faith wasn't in Christ's death and resurrection. Right? All that was further revelation. But they are people you can point to to show right, justification by faith. Again, what was their faith in? It was in a promise given to them. Right, It was still in the law. We saw where Abraham, things changed in his life where he had to do circumcision right, at a certain point in time in his life. Right? So the man of faith would do that. David said, I would bring the sacrifice, but there's none in the law that says to bring it for murder, right? So I'm just asking for your forgiveness, basically. So David, still being a man of faith, was willing to do the law, right? If there had been a sacrifice, he would have brought it. Again, difference for us, we're not under the law. Christ has came. The mystery has been revealed. Our faith is in Christ's work, not our own, right? And so it's to him that worketh not in this dispensation, but believes on Christ. His faith is counted for righteousness. And so those are some of the difference between David, Abraham, and us today, right? What you believe, the further 